0: bosses who let you off to come and be a part of this, and I'm glad for that. Uh, Many of you have brought uh, your kids, and I know that's been really uh, a successful time for them as well. So I appreciate your diligence, and let me just quickly thank the song leaders. Uh, We've had kind of a blend this week of some who are, I understand, just beginning, and some who have been doing it for quite a while, and I just thought that the song selections for these morning sessions have been so good uh, and uh, tying in with our themes I, I would never have thought of the one for this morning and I'm kind of mad at myself but I wouldn't think of that one but uh, what a perfect song for what we've been talking about this week with the holiness of God uh, calling in that idea of the cherubim as we've been looking at the Ark of the Covenant so just really appreciate that. So here we are in the last day of our journey with the Ark. So we've got to figure out what happened to it, right? That's, that's what we need to know. Uh, did Indiana Jones discover it and Nazis melt and all of that? It's an interesting depiction, isn't it? Uh, they, they brought in some of those biblical themes and Hollywooded it up quite a bit. If you travel to Ethiopia, you can stand outside where the Ark of the Covenant is held, if you listen to some. There's a cathedral, I think it used to be in a tent, seems to be a more elaborate building now, where supposedly the Ethiopians have the Ark of the Covenant and they appoint a priest over it who lives his life with the Ark and he appoints his successor. I was reading a little bit more about that this morning, hadn't read about it in a while, so I was looking at an article or two, and there was uh, an interview with, I believe, a British archaeologist who had seen this. Uh, right after World War II, and he said, i got bad news for you. He said, this ark was made in the medieval period when that was a big thing. When you imitated the ark, built all of these replicas of it. So what happened? Well, I don't know the answer to that. In fact, God doesn't elaborate on it at all. The very last place in the Old Testament that we read about it is going to be in the book of Jeremiah, where we'll look at here in just a minute. And so most thought on it is, is that when the Babylonians came in and took all of the possessions out of the temple away, that it was at that time that the ark was likely destroyed. I think that's a feasible idea for certain. When we find the return from captivity and all the stuff is coming out of storage and it's being listed off, uh, the ark is not included in that. And one would suspect that if it was still a part of that temple uh, uh, ensemble of things that was going to be brought back, surely it would have held a prominent position. And so we imagine then that as Zerubbabel and Joshua rebuild the temple, and as they construct the most holy place, that there is a very likely possibility that it was empty. Just a memory. Of what once would have sat there. So with that in our thoughts. Let's look here in Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. And as we look down to verse 16. Jeremiah writes. When you have multiplied and increased in the land in those days. Declares the Lord. They will no more say. The ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered, or missed. It shall not be made again. Well, that seems to be the answer to our question. God says, you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to be concerned about it. Because there is a time coming when the ark is not going to be there. You're not going to be able to look on it. Nor are you going to miss it. And so the implication of this and the surrounding verses is that something is coming that's going to be much, much better than what we find in the Ark of the Covenant. And so let's carry our scenario a bit further. So Zerubbabel, Joshua, they rebuild the temple. The Ark is not there. Years plot along. We know that Herod comes along, and we call it Herod's temple, don't we? Because Herod pretty much disassembled the whole thing and put it back together and made it this beautiful building with all these courtyards and landscape. But yet still, no Ark of the Covenant, so it's been waiting. It's interesting that when Zerubbabel rebuilt it, they dedicated it. You didn't have the smoke of God. Come into it. At least it's not recorded if that happened. And so it's like the temple is sitting there and it's longing for a better day. It's longing for God to finally move in. Now that doesn't take anything away from it. Jesus called it his Father's house. But yet it was waiting for that day when God would come. And when we open our Bibles to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that day coming. We've been talking this week about the ark. One thing that we've not talked about much is what was inside the ark. And so in the book of Hebrews, we have that recorded for us. The writer says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant i don't know exactly how this worked do you was was this something that god in some way authorized someone to take these out and to set them up in display so that the children of Israel could come by and and look at them? Or was it just simply the fact that they were in there and they were taught that they were in there? I don't know the answer to that. The Bible, as far as I can tell, doesn't give a lot of detail. But what I do know is that by God placing these three things in there, He's reminding them of things from their history that were essential for them to keep in their memory. But yet is that all? I think what we see in these three things is not only a reminder of the history of the people of Israel, but in a sense, it's also looking forward to something, or rather somebody else who's going to come, who's going to make it, where we don't need to remember the Ark of the Covenant. We don't need to worry about it ever being constructed again. Because what we're finding in these things within the ark are very much pictures of how God has dealt with His people but yet pointing us toward someone who is going to be much greater than all of these things that we've been looking at. And whereas the ark was that reminder of the Eden setting where God and man came together, in Jesus Christ we're going to find the fulfillment of that and the very one who's going to pave the way for all of us who are faithful to Him to once again be in that paradise setting. I'm going to exercise self-control this morning because I think I could go for several hours on this topic. But we're going to try to keep it to a a manageable amount this morning. And so I'll do a a fair amount of summarizing in some of the history of Israel, but yet it would be great if while this is on your mind, you went back and explored some of these passages because uh, it's just so rich in giving us an understanding of what this ark in its history has been pointing toward that you and I can look at in its full story. Let's talk about these three things in the ark. And we'll begin with the manna that was in it. Manna holds a really intriguing place in the story of the Bible. And so what I want to do is just drop back for a minute. We'll get the historical context. And then we're going to bring it up to the time of Jesus and to see what he had to say about it. We know that when the children of Israel come out of the land of Egypt, they're they're happy, they're excited. We read that, uh, that song, that hymn earlier in the week and talked about it, the Song of Moses. But yet it didn't take long for the, the harrowing lifestyle of the desert set in. We oftentimes really tisk and shake our heads at the Israelites. I doubt any of us would have been much better, right? Let the air conditioner go out on an August afternoon and it's like we're dying. You know, we're crying to go back to Egypt for the air conditioning. We, we know what it means to be really, really impatient. And that's kind of the picture we get within. And so as they're, they're grumbling to Moses about their food supply, God is going to show just how generous He can be. And so in Exodus chapter 16, For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill us the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they'll walk in my law. Interesting language. Thus far in the Bible story, rain has held a destructive place. We had the rains of the flood that came. We had fire and brimstone raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. But now God says, in my benevolence, I'm going to rain down this bread from heaven so that you'll be able to eat of it. And so He says, this is really going to be a test for them because for six days, I'm going to allow this miraculous bread to come to them. But on the seventh day is going to be a day of rest, a day of no gathering. And so once again, we're seeing a bit of the mimicking of the creation week where things are being brought in pointing toward that seventh day that would be a day of rest. And so we know the story right, about how they went through that, having to learn that lesson. But we'll save that for another day. Let's just kind of soak in the fact right now that God is meeting the need of His people. God is quite literally helping them to have their daily bread. And that's what that manna is representing. Now, we we fast forward through the centuries. And we come to the time when Jesus is walking the earth, and manna now is going to come back to prominence for a little while. These later Israelites like the idea of getting bread on a miraculous basis. And Jesus has really intrigued them with this. He's picked their interest because here uh, they're, they're listening to him and The disciples are wondering how they're going to be fed and Jesus kind of testing them in all of this. And He says, just sit them down on the green grass and divide them up and take what we have, these loaves and these fish that some little boy's mama packed for him that morning. You take that and I'll show you what God can do. And so all four of our Gospel writers record this great miracle where God provides nourishment for the 5,000. Tremendous miracle, tremendous display of power, tremendous lesson that God can give us the daily bread that we need. But as this progresses, we're going to see that the people become much more interested in the provisions than in the one who can provide. We think about what Jesus says over in John chapter 6, going down to verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I don't know what was going on in their mind. Was it the fact that this guy can give us food and we don't have to work? Was it the fact that maybe we can go against the Roman Empire and here's our bread machine out on the field and we won't have to worry about provisions? I don't know what was going on in their head. But what Jesus shows us is they were much more interested in the physical nourishment than in the one who's standing before them. You want to go ahead on over to John chapter 6. We're going to look at a couple of passages as we go down through this. I'm just going to mention this one kind of in passing. We'll not read these verses. But one of the things that legend had associated with the coming of the Messiah was manna. That manna would again return. And so I think there's at least the possibility that there would have been some in this crowd who might have thought that was going on and that may have been picking their interest. But let's look at what we can know for sure. What Jesus is telling this crowd and what we can understand through that. The point he's wanting wanting them to see is the same point that God wanted the ancient Israelites to see. You need to see the God behind all of this. You don't need to get all concerned and all uptight about the blessing. You need to understand who it is who can take care of you. And so Jesus is going to explain Himself in these terms, and He's going to use that same terminology that we looked at back in the book of Exodus. Let's look here in verse 35 of John chapter 6. Jesus flat out says, I'm the manna you need to be thinking about. I'm the bread of life that you need to be concerned with. And as He continues on with that discussion, He's going to say, if you're focusing on the bread, you are absolutely missing what I can give to you. Let's look on down to verse 47. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So Jesus is saying, you need to take your eyes off the provision and look at the provider. Understand what I can give to you. And then as He wraps up this conversation with them, He develops that idea even further. Let's go ahead to verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I suspect that language was as troubling then as it is now. When you talk about starting to eat flesh and drink blood, I mean, that's a <laughs> that's a pretty intense description, isn't it? But yet, if we take our Bible story in its completeness, it helps us to make sense of it. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to be a part of you. You're taking me. I'm I'm going to live in you. I think that's one application. But I also think Jesus is going all the way back to the garden, don't you? That Jesus is saying, if you want to think about the fruit of the tree of life, here it is. You eat of this tree and you're going to live forever. That's very similar language to what God said of Adam and Eve after they were kicked out of the garden. He says, if I let them stay here and they reach up their hands to the tree of life and live forever, Jesus is using that language. And so what He's saying is this, you've got to make sure that you're not getting so caught up in these physical things that you're missing the tree of life who can offer you eternal life. If you'll accept it. point I want us to understand is that this has got to be much more than an academic study of looking how the Jews dealt with it. Because these things are being written to test us also. So we look at this and we ask the question, am I seeing Jesus for who He is? Am I eating of His flesh, and drinking of His blood? Am I looking at Him as my tree of life so that I can gain that eternal life with Him? We understand from a physical standpoint, don't we, that nourishment, real nourishment, comes only from the right kind of food. You eat terribly, your health is going to pay for that. Real nourishment is coming from the right kind of eating. And so we understand then as Jesus is giving His sermon on the mountain as He's opening the gate up to the kingdom He says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So when I'm looking to Jesus what I'm doing is I'm seeking to find the one who can fulfill that. Who can give me the nourishment that's going to make me a righteous person. The nourishment of Jesus has got to change our entire life. I've had more than one home improvement project that I think it's going to be a little project. It's not going to be a big deal. You know where I'm going, right? (laughs) They tear off a floorboard or tear off a piece of sheetrock and the guy comes in and says, "Uh, Mr. Chandler, we need to talk. I found something. And you start hearing the the cha-chinging of the cash register, right? Now, what should we do at that point? We should say, it needs to be fixed. You know, if it's a rotten joist, termite damage or whatever, let's let's get it taken care of. But now, what if I told him? I tell you what, just patch the sheetrock and give it a good coat of paint. Make it look really, really good on the outside. That'd be foolish. That'd be foolish. Because that facade is not going to solve the problem. Yet, I'm afraid that's how a lot of times we look at coming to Jesus, that we're going to do a few outward repairs. You know, our language is going to clean up a little bit. Maybe we're not going to hang around the same place as we used to. And we're painting and we're putting a picture on the wall, but we're never getting rid of that deep rot that Jesus is exposing and saying, I can replace that with something much better. That's what Jesus was encouraging them to do, and that's what He's encouraging us to do as well. So that nourishment that we're talking about has got to be, from the bottom up, a complete change in the way we think about everything. Because nothing in the life of a Christian is secular. We don't look at anything without the lens of Jesus Christ. So then, He provides that change. And He also provides the nourishment that's going to sustain. Some of you have been to this part of the world where those ancient Israelites were. You look out across that bleak landscape and you feel their pain right it's just such a barren empty place and those kinds of situations can even play tricks on us now can't they you don't have to go to the desert sometimes you can see this on a really hot road you know at maybe out um, in the middle of summer and you're driving down a blacktop road and in the distance you'll begin to see something that looks a little bit like water now, don't do the Looney Tunes version of this. You know, The Looney Tunes, they'll see a restaurant, a swimming pool and all that. There. What our eyes do is they trick us. And it makes it look like that there's water. Just step ahead. It's called a mirage. It's a real thing. And so someone who's stuck out in the desert without water, that begins to play on their mind. It's like, if I can just make it a little bit further, I can have that sustaining of my life. Now, mention that to you, because as we've talked about this week, there's so much symbolism in the Bible, and we kind of think about at times we're we're in a, a wilderness type setting in in this earth on this earth. And I'm afraid sometimes we begin to put things in the place of Jesus. And we say, if I can just get a little more knowledge, if I can just get a little more understanding of philosophy, if I can. And so you see humanity putting all these things, just like Atheist is saying, if I can just get a little more self completion. Or a humanist who says, humans are eventually going to rise up. And we've been following that mirage for a long time. And You'll have something like World War I come along. And it destroys that idea. But yet we still fall prey to that of saying there's something just over the horizon. No. Jesus says, it's me. I'm the food. I'm the drink. I'm the one who provides that life. And I believe this is our first picture within the ark of the covenant. It's pointing us to Jesus Christ. Let's continue on. Hebrew writer says, Also within the ark was Aaron's staff that budded. This is coming from a very, very dark place in the history of Israel. Go back to Numbers chapter 16 with me. Numbers chapter 16. Anyone who can read this section of the Bible and not feel sympathy for Moses, I'm convinced cannot feel sympathy. What he had to put up with. And here is an occasion where we're going to find people who are rivaling a position he really didn't want at first. And what they're saying is, we want to be in your position so that we can deal with people like us. You ever thought about that? (laughs) They're saying, we we want to be the leaders now. And this has Moses very upset. So Korah, Daphne, Abiram, and on, they're coming to him here. And they're saying, you are not the only holy one in this camp. We're all holy. And basically the idea is, we don't care who you and your brother Aaron are, we're the ones who really ought to be in position here. And I tell you, this particular section is so chock full of imagery from things that have happened before, we're going to have to resist going down that that trail for all of those. But I do want to point out a couple of things to you. If you look here in chapter 16, and go with me down to verse 26, Moses is now addressing the, the congregation after this rebellion has taken place. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart please from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. When's the last time we read about being someone, about someone being swept away? That was at Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the last time we saw this language. And so that is intense for us to say that God is viewing this situation of rebellion very much like the rebellion at Sodom and Gomorrah. And Moses is saying to the congregation, these guys are about to get it and you need to make sure that you step away from them. Don't be anywhere around lest you also share in their destruction. And so what we're going to find is that there's somewhat of a test set up. Moses is is playing mediator, intercessor right up to the end. He's saying to God, look, don't kill all the Israelites here. Don't destroy them, all just these men that are rebelling. And so God's agreeable to that. And so the contest is kind of set up. And Moses said, Now, you know, we're going to meet here, and if nothing happens, you know, no great thing happens, then you're going to know I'm in the wrong. And these men are in the right. You can follow them then. But if God creates something new, That's going to bring about their destruction immediately. Then you'll know. I want you to look at this in verse 30. It says, but if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you will know that these men have despised the Lord we find two swallowings before this. One of them is in Exodus 15 where it talks about God swallowing up the Egyptians in the earth. Almost the identical line here. There's another interesting one I think we need to have playing on the radio while we're studying this. And that's back when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. And Moses and Aaron can throw a staff down And it becomes a serpent. You Remember that story? So all the magicians, they do the same thing. Their staffs become serpents. And then what happens? The staff that's associated with Moses and Aaron, it swallows up the others. I think that's important for chapter 17 where staffs are going to come back in. So God's saying, let me remind you of a few things. Just a little hint here to get you in the right frame of mind. We know the rest of the story, don't we? God opens the ground. Koradath and Abiram, I think, maybe thought better of things and got away. They and their families and their possessions are all swallowed by the earth and there's panic in the camp. And not more than 24 hours after seeing all of this, the people come to Moses and say, why did you kill these good men? And God says, I've had it. No more. No intercessions now, Moses. And he starts a plague across the camp. And Moses and Aaron realize the seriousness of this, and they hit the ground. And Moses says, go get the censer, and you find where this plague is going. It's it's kind of like you can watch the people falling. And he he says, you put that censer between the last dead and the next living, and let's see if God maybe will have mercy. Which He does. And God says, I want this known once and for all. That I have decided who the leadership is in this camp. It is not a democracy. I've made that decision. And he says, you go get a staff from every tribe, and you bring them, and you put them here in this holy place, and tomorrow morning when you come back, the one that's budded, that's going to be the one who I have shown to be the leader. And we know that Aaron's staff, we're told, Not only budded, but it blossomed and it produced ripe almonds. And then I think it's very interesting as we look down to the end of this. Verse 10 of chapter 17. The Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that they may make an end of their grumbling against me lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? They're having their out of Eden moment, aren't they? They're realizing if we get anywhere, or thinking anyway, if we get anywhere close to this thing, God's going to wipe us out. But I want us to focus in on this staff for just a minute, because that's what God keeps. And we find that what came from this dead piece of wood was life. Another tree of life moment. We've got life coming from this tree, Though it was dead, now it's back, and it testified of the leadership that God had established. Now, we take that and we put it up alongside Jesus. And the parallels tend to pop, don't they? We're not going to read all these passages just for the sake of our time this morning. But let me just point out a few of these. Like this staff, Jesus would die. He, He makes that point, doesn't he? John 16, John 19. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer there, I'm going to die there. But yet the point that Jesus is making is, I'm not going to stay dead. Life is going to return. Now, if something dies, it's not supposed to come back. When you think about a walking stick, maybe the closest thing we can think of to Aaron's staff, once it's cut from the tree, It's not supposed to bear fruit anymore. It's done with that. And yet, here is Aaron's staff that's doing that very thing. And here's Jesus, when someone dies and is put in the grave, they're not supposed to come back again. But yet, three days later, life returns. And what do we find by that? That return to life is what is showing us that we can believe in Jesus Christ. You think about how many good teachers have died in the course of human history. Probably several you can think of that you knew that, man, they just helped you so much to to understand things and to get close to God. But they're still dead, aren't they? Yet here's Jesus with a great show of the power of God is back from the tomb. And that's why, before he ascends to heaven, he can say, let me remind you, apostles, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth because I did it. I lived like I ought. I died. I'm back from the dead. We can take it a step further. We also find that fruit is born. That, in a sense, is us. Here Jesus, because of His death and His resurrection and His authority, calls us to Him and says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to Me and I will give you rest. Or we could add what we read earlier, eat of Me and drink of Me and you'll have eternal life. And so we see in the ark with Aaron's staff this picture of a Savior who was dead. But then was not dead. And because of his authority, he can bring fruit into the family of God. So, our third picture holds a really significant place both then and now. Isn't it interesting that we're still kind of battling about the Ten Commandments? You <laughs> ever thought about that? Here we are, 2023, and we're fighting over whether we can put it on the courthouse square or whatever. I think that shows us the significance of not only the Ten Commandments, but also the law of God. And when we think about the Ark of the Covenant, in a way, it's kind of playing with the idolaters' ideas. When you would go into an idol's temple, there would be something likely similar to the Ark of the Covenant. And it would have all the legal documents and such that this God was supposed to be watching over And towering up above it would be his stone statue. Yet God says, "Uh, you can't capture me in stone or wood. And so the Ark of the Covenant is kind of representing the base of God's throne. But when you look at it, it's the invisible God. The God who can't be captured. And as he's, he's somewhat mimicking this idea, he says, okay, you want to know the most important thing? It's the covenant that you and I have made. And so he tells Moses, I want you to take a copy and I want you to put it in the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant that we've made. And so when we think about the law, I'm afraid sometimes as Gentile Christians so far removed, we almost look at the law as something bad. That this is something that that really was just this, you know, just not very good before we go down that direction, let's remember who gave that law. I don't think I'm prepared to say that God gives us anything bad, are you? What we understand is that within this law, God's saying, okay, you want to be my holy people? Let me show you what that looks like. Let me show you what it means to be my holy people. And He gives all of these commands that are covering all different aspects of life, And what they're to do and not do and eat and not eat. And he's teaching them how to separate and discern. He's saying this is what it looks like to be my people. And at the base of this entire law was the Ten Commandments. Kind of like the foundation stones. Everything's resting on. And so whatever law you're following, you could trace it back to one of those commandments. It's, It's holding everything together. And so as we think about commandments, these laws that we read in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, there's a lot of mercy and grace within it. Because God says, here is what it means to be like me. But I know who you are. And I know how easily you fall. And so I'm going to put in for this in my grace, and in my mercy, a way that you can substitute an animal when really you deserve to die. Because if you break my law, death is what follows. Wherever there's sin, there's death, and you really ought to die. But he says, I'm going to allow the blood of this animal to be the substitute for your blood. It's life for your life. And so as we look back to that, we see that every Jew who was serious about these things, had to offer a sacrifice because all the Jews sinned and fell short. Except one. And that was God in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, who perfectly followed that law, and in doing so, showed himself to be the one worthy to finally crush that serpent's head, to finally be the one who could provide the sacrifice for mankind. And so every drop of blood that flowed through the long history of the law of Moses was pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ. You ever just read about all of those sacrifices? how many gallons of blood flowed because of the sins of the people. And yet, every time a lamb had its throat slit and the blood come out and it crinkles and it dies, it was saying, there's going to be a better lamb one day. And that's Jesus Christ. And so the Hebrew writer would say, when He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then He added, Behold, I have come to do your will, He who does away with the first in order to establish the second. When John sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is tying all this together for us. He's helping us to understand that He is the one who's going to take away the first so that the second can be established. And what we understand by that is that the law of Moses was not abolished or destroyed by Jesus. Jesus says, I didn't come to do that. I came to fulfill it. When I'm teaching this to kids, my go-to example these days is Amazon. When you order something from Amazon, When the order arrives at your house, you get an email and what does it say? Your order has been fulfilled. It means we've done everything necessary to get this to you. Now it's in your hands. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying everything in the law was pointing toward me. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, they're all talking about me. Every sacrifice is is talking about me. And now that I'm here, that has met its requirement. It's fulfilled what it was designed to do and now we can close the book on it and the second can be established. And so that's what Jesus does for you and me. And that's why He'll say in His sermon that I come to abolish it. Of course not. Come to fulfill. So then, He's the foundation of our salvation. He's the one that when we are deciding what we need to do, we look to His authority, and thus He can, with 100% confidence and accuracy, say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's our authority. He's the one who's the fulfillment. And when you and I begin to think about the, what we're going to do, what we need, how we need to live our lives, we say everything is done in the name of Jesus Christ, by His law, by His will, by His authority. So as we conclude, let's go back to the book of Hebrews chapter 9 it says but when christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of blood of bulls and or calves and goats but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption So as the children of Israel hauled this box around all those years what they didn't fully understand we do. That God still provides the bread of life. That God still demonstrates authority by what was dead but comes back to life and bears fruit. And that God provides the foundation for us to live. Not by the law that He gave to a particular people for a particular time, but by a Savior who is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And in those pictures, we can see the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. The way back to Eden. The way back to fellowship. The way back to paradise where our relationship with God is one of openness and love. And I thank you very much, not only today, but all week, for the very good attention that you paid to these things. Maybe we have someone with us this morning who's not a Christian. You're being given the opportunity by the Lord one more time to make that decision. And I hope based on the things that you've heard this morning, that that decision may be a little easier to make. That you know who's the authority, that you know whose blood will save you. If you understand the purpose of baptism, that that's where your sins are forgiven, you can make that right this morning. And the opportunity is provided while we stand and sing together.